All right. Well, if you are joining us for the first time this morning, or for the first time in a while, uh, we are wrapping up a little three-part sermon series on Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives. Doctrinal distinctives are those interpretations of Scripture that have been historically taught in Advent Christian churches, and although these are not absolutely unique to Advent Christians, lots of Christians down through the years and today interpret the Bible in the same way, they do tend to be what defines and sets apart an Advent Christian church from, say, a Baptist church or any of the other denominations. And as I have done for the past two weeks, bear with me for being repetitious, but I think this is so critically important that we have this at the beginning. Uh, I have to say a word about the primary concern that has to exist around conversations like these for unity within the church generally. I don't want anyone to hear in what, in an exploration of Advent Christian denominational distinctives, any sort of tribalism or denominational chest pounding or any such thing. I began by um, explaining this a couple weeks ago, uh, but we live here by the maxim, uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. In, among Christians, there are those things that all Christians agree and those are the essentials of the faith. Those are the load-bearing central pillars under which all Christians gather. And those are all critical. They really define the frontier of what it is to be Christian. And to kick those props out is the whole tent kind of comes down. Now, all of the distinctives that we're talking about as far as the things that Advent Christians have historically believed and taught our interpretations of Scripture are not in that category. These are secondary or maybe even third-tier doctrinal convictions. These are areas where Christians of good conscience can and will disagree, and that's okay. That is totally fine. I'm aware and have become even more aware <laughs> over the course of this sermon series that many people who call State Road their church home, their convictions may not line up exactly with what I'm teaching here this morning or over the past two, and again, that is fine. That's okay. In fact, we don't require that you agree with these doctrinal interpretations to be a member here at State Road. Uh, the thing that we ask is that you be a sincere Christian, that we agree on those areas of, that all Christians should be unified around, and in the secondary doctrinal stuff, which really define and set us apart, perhaps, that's just great for discussion. Um, we, we want to have a robust exploration of Scripture. I certainly believe these things, but I also know that nobody's salvation depends on whether they agree with us on is man immortal, or when you die, do you go directly to heaven, or do you lay in the ground in a state of unconsciousness until the second coming of Christ? And that's also true for what we're going to be talking about this morning which is the ultimate or final end of the wicked. Now, by the way, I need to say this at the outset. I've been using that phrase so far, and I don't, I, I'm aware of how that might land on somebody's ears. When I say the end of the wicked, somebody might hear me say that and think, well, man, Josh thinks he's one of the good ones. <laughs> As though Christians have this belief that we're good and great, and I'm going to heaven, of course, right? But then there are the wicked. I don't mean it that way. That's not true to how I feel. 
Uh, Christians, of course, are not good people. We're forgiven people. We're people who have been shown grace. The, one of the central, uh, in fact, I remember when years ago when I was a police officer, I was in a debate with somebody else who worked at the department. Not really a debate, but we would have long nights where not much was going on sometimes, and we would talk about my faith as a Christian. And this person would always bring up problems with Christianity. Uh, are you aware of Christianity's role in slavery? Are you aware of the uh, Crusades? Are you aware of this, that, or the other? And this person's strategy was just to point out the fact that Christians down through the years have failed to live up to their convictions. And I said, well, in order to find fault with Christianity, you have to find fault with something that Christianity claims to be perfect. And all you're doing is reinforcing one of the central ideas of Christianity, which is that human beings aren't. Human beings are sinners. Human beings fail. Human beings are hypocrites. I'll stipulate. I agree with all of it. <laughs> and if you dig too deep into Josh Tate's life, you will find that I'm a, I'm a sinner too, that I have failed at many times. And so the thought is this. Christians are saved because our God is perfect, not because we are good. And so when we come to this idea of wickedness, when I say that we're going to be talking about the ultimate or final end of the wicked, I am not saying that some people are good and some people are bad. Really, my conviction is that all people are wicked unless they're made righteous through what Jesus did for them. I have no righteousness of my own, but I do embrace and believe and I put on the righteousness of Christ. I'm not wicked because I've been made righteous. I'm not righteous in fact, but I have been made righteous. So when I use that, please understand that's how I mean it. So for the past two weeks, what we have been doing is beginning our time by asking a question, and then we have turned to God's word to seek an answer to that question. On week one, we asked, is man immortal? And after seeking God's word, we came away with the answer that man is not immortal, but is rather immortable. Immortable means that man is capable of attaining to immortality, but is not by nature immortal. Man was at the first created for immortality, but in the fall, immortality was forfeited. Death entered into the world and passed upon all human beings, and now a continuing existence in eternity belongs solely to the redeemed. Immortality has been made conditional on a saving relationship with Jesus. That was the study from two weeks ago. Now, last week, we asked the question, what happens to a person when they die? And I mean what happens in the minutes, hours, days, years following a person's death. What happens to them? And after searching the Bible, we came away with the answer that when a person dies, they do not go immediately to heaven or hell, but that death is a condition of unconsciousness, like sleep, to all people. But those who were both those who were followers of Jesus in life and those who were not. And that the dead will remain in this unconscious state until the resurrection at the second coming of Christ, at which time all people who have died will be raised bodily from their graves to stand before the throne of judgment, some unto eternal life, and others unto eternal destruction. Now this brings us to our question for this morning. 
According to the Bible, not according to your opinion, Josh Tate, but not according to what you wish were so, but according to the Bible, what does God say is the ultimate or final end of those people who die having never put their trust in Jesus for salvation? At the center of Christianity is the joyous reality of good news. We are all about good news. We are the good news people. When I, uh, again, when I used to work as a police officer, I, I was sometimes given the unhappy assignment of going and delivering death notifications to the living. But I'm a pastor now, and I rejoice that my job so often calls me not to give death notifications to the living, but life notifications to the dying. That is a much happier assignment. The Christian message is, at its core, a happy and hopeful one. However, it has to be owned that before there can ever be good news, there must first be bad news. The bad news which makes the good news of the gospel so sweet, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. The bad news centers on the horrific consequences of man's rebellion against a righteous God, and those consequences can be neatly contained in one truly horrible and frightening word, hell. Without the bad news of hell, there would not be the good news of the gospel. Unless we are saved from something truly horrific, there is no celebration of our salvation. For me, hell is an unquestioned reality. It is plainly proclaimed in the Bible. The Bible is full of warnings to flee the horror of God's wrath. And although Christians might disagree on the exact nature of hell, all Christians, anybody who reads the Bible with an ounce of intellectual honesty, comes away with the sense that hell is something to be fled from. It is a horror unparalleled by all that we have ever known in the horrors of fallen earth. When we talk about being saved, you know, I was, uh, I, a couple, I think it was like a week ago maybe was the anniversary of when Abraham Lincoln died. And I was reading a, an article about Abraham Lincoln's death. And it said that he died from a bullet. And I said, that's not true. <laughs> he didn't die from a bullet, really. Uh, it wouldn't even be fair to say that he died from a gun, Those were the nearest causes of his death, but what was the ultimate cause of Abraham Lincoln's death? John Wilkes Booth killed him. He died from John Wilkes Booth. And I think that when we as Christians talk about salvation, we usually say we're saved from sin and death. But those are just the nearest things. What are we actually saved from? Sin is only a problem because God is holy, because God is a God of justice. So when we talk about being saved, let's be crystal clear. The sinner doesn't have a sin problem so much as he has a God problem. Christians are saved by God, 
for God, but yes, also from God. God is perfect in his attributes. We see his perfection in love, in the fact that he came to save us, but we also see that he is a perfectly just and righteous God who cannot, cannot look upon sin. It must be punished. This is why the cross is so precious to us. But we are saved from God. Sin is only a problem because God is holy. And when we talk about hell, we are talking about the wrath that will be poured out on sinners who have rebelled against a righteous God. But what does the Bible say about hell? And what becomes of those people who never embrace the good news of the gospel, but who remain under the curse of the bad news? That's our question for this morning. In answer to this question, his Advent Christians have historically held the conviction that following the resurrection of the dead, those who have been made righteous through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus will receive eternal life and pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. All the wonder and excellence of heaven will belong to those. And those who remain in their sins will be punished with everlasting destruction that will ultimately result in a complete extinction of being. Now, the term that theologians apply to this interpretation is annihilationism. Annihilationism is the belief, plainly spoken, that after a period of judgment and wrath, human beings will be utterly and completely destroyed, and they will have no continuing existence in eternity at all. However, annihilationism rests on a more foundational doctrine, and that is what is called conditional immortality. That's what we studied two weeks ago when we posed the question, is man immortal? And it was important that we began this series with the question, is man immortal? Because if you answer that question, yes, as many Christians do today, then it will naturally follow that if people are inherently immortal, that is, that some part of them continues to exist into eternity following their death, then for the damned, eternity must be marked by unceasing conscious torment. If you must, of necessity, because it's essential to man's nature that he continue eternally, then what is eternity under judgment and wrath but unceasing conscious torment? That's the way the thinking goes. However, without revisiting our study from two weeks ago in its entirety, you guys don't want to hear the same sermon twice, I assume. Our searching of the scriptures from that time left me with the clear conviction that a belief that man is inherently or by nature immortal seems to me to be more rooted in the teachings of Plato and Greek philosophy than in the plain teachings of the Bible. In fact, if that was the only thing that we took up to discuss, as we did two weeks ago, it's really difficult to find any support in the Bible for the idea that man is immortal. There's no chapter and verse that says that. And so we really came away with the very clear biblical instruction that man is mortal. And in fact, beyond just not saying that man is immortal, there, it says many times 
that man is mortal and that immortality can only be sought or gained through a saving relationship with Jesus. If we read the Bible without the pervasive assumption that souls of men are destined to exist eternally, whether they are saved or not, we see that the Bible describes the ends of those who remain in their sins as judgment, followed by a period of wrath, which is in turn followed by an act of destruction that again results in a complete extinction of being. Scripture declares that immortality is something that belongs to God alone. God graciously offers immortality as a gift to those who embrace the gospel. And those who choose to reject God's will are denied this gift and will suffer complete and utter destruction. Fun stuff, right? Let's begin our exploration about what the Bible says on this topic by thinking a little about the word eternal. In the Bible, we find these descriptions of the end for non-believers. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hebrews 6, 2 describes their end as eternal judgment. And 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, if you begin with the assumption that man is inherently immortal, there's really only one way to read those verses. It is talking about eternal in duration. Uh, And this is really a hang-up I think a lot of folks have. This is sort of an unexamined assumption that they have. When they come to phrases like eternal punishment, they think of it as eternal in duration. But what about these verses that describe the state of believers after the resurrection? He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's Hebrews 5.9. Or what about Hebrews 9.12? He entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Are we to understand that God is saying that your redemption is being worked out eternally? Or do we understand, is salvation a process? Or is it, as it says here, once for all? He entered once for all thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, if it's not eternal in duration, it can also be understood, and I think rightly understood, as eternal in effect. Eternal in, in, that, in its consequence. For example, if I, um, if, if I wanted to punish one of my children, they stole a piece of a lollipop. And so I took the lollipop away from them, and I threw it into the wood stove, and it burned up, completely, that is a judgment that would stand forever. There is no coming back from that. That lollipop can never be restored and given back to that child. But it's not eternal in duration. That lollipop would not continuously be burning forever and ever and ever, but it would be an eternal punishment in that it would stand forever. It's irreversible. In consequence and effect, it's eternal. So when we come back to these verses and it talks about eternal punishment, eternal judgment, eternal destruction, 
I just want folks to see and understand that that is not a slam dunk argument for eternal enduration. There is another way to view and understand such language. One commentator I read says this about these verses. The elect do not undergo an eternal process of redemption. Their redemption is eternal in the sense that once the elect are redeemed, it is forever. So too, the damned do not undergo an eternal process of punishment or destruction, but once they are punished and destroyed, it is forever. Hell is eternal in consequence, not duration. The wicked are destroyed forever, but they are not forever being destroyed. The same commentator goes on. Along the same lines, Scripture's references to an unquenchable fire and undying worm refer to the finality of judgment, not its duration. If these passages are read in context, it becomes clear that the fire is unquenchable in the sense that it cannot be put out before it consumes those thrown into it. And the, word, the worm is undying in the sense that there is no hope for the condemned, that it will be prevented from devouring their corpses. These passages teach that the wicked will justly suffer for their sins, but the end result will be their destruction. Now in our Bibles, there are three words that are translated hell. Uh, the first is Hades, and this is what we talked about last week. Hades in the Bible, sometimes translated hell, always describes the intermediate state, the grave, where the dead rest in sleep awaiting resurrection and judgment at the second coming. The second and the rarest form of hell in our Bibles is called Tartarus. And Tartarus is the place of fallen angels. And this is only used once in our Bibles in 2 Peter 4. Now the third one and the, th the third word used for hell and the one that has application for this morning is Gehenna. Gehenna is always and only used in our Bibles to describe the place of future destruction. Gehenna is the only word for the hell of punishment. It is used only 11 times by Jesus and once by James. So I think that's important to keep in mind is that in the Bible, when sometimes when we read the word hell, we have to dig a little bit deeper. Sometimes it's talking about the, the sleep of the dead. Other times it's talking about the ultimate or final end. Gehenna, when the Bible does this, is speaking about the hell of punishment. Now, as we have said on previous Sundays, we have no reason for holding a belief or conviction unless the Bible says it. And I'm aware that as a Bible teacher, I only have authority insofar as I stand under the authority of God's Word. So what, about, what does God's Word have to say on this topic? Let's first look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament is noteworthy for what it does say about the end of the wicked, but it's also noteworthy for what it does not say. For example, in Genesis, where God describes the consequences of Adam's rebellion and its disastrous effects for every generation of mankind, it never mentions unceasing conscious torment as a consequence of sin and fall and rebellion. Doesn't that seem like a pretty significant omission? That's pretty, that's amazing. Moses, the man through whom God gave his people the law, never mentioned unceasing conscious torment as a consequence for breaking the law and rejecting God. 
That's also noteworthy. However, all that would be an argument from silence, which is interesting and thought-provoking, but not a very sturdy branch to hang our convictions off of. We shouldn't root our convictions in what the Bible doesn't say, but what it does say. And the Old Testament speaks plainly and forcefully to the fact that the ultimate end for non-believers is destruction. Take, for example, Psalm 37. In that psalm, we read that the wicked will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. They will be cut off and be no more. That they will perish and vanish like smoke and that they will be altogether destroyed. We find the same imagery in Malachi. Malachi 4, 1 through 2, it says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The theme that the Lord will annihilate the wicked is especially prominent in the Psalms. The psalmist says that whereas those who take delight in the Lord shall be like a tree planted by streams of water, the wicked will be like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will perish. They shall be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel, Psalm 2.9, torn into fragments, Psalm 50.22, and blotted out of the book of the living, Psalm 69.28. Each of these metaphors depicts total annihilation. Similarly, the Lord's plan for evildoers is to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Evil brings death to the wicked, says Psalm 34. The wicked shall be so thoroughly destroyed that they shall not even be remembered, Psalm 9, 6 and 34, 16. Isaiah 1 says this in verse 28 and verses 30 through 31. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So when we read all that the Old Testament says on this topic, we come away with the clear impression that the ultimate or final end of those who never put their trust in Jesus for salvation is destruction, along the same lines as if you took uh, wood and tossed it in a fire and it gets burned up, consumed. That's the idea. Then we come to the New Testament. And when we read all that Jesus said on the topic of hell, we come away not with a clear idea of what hell will be like, his language doesn't seem to be designed to convey precise information about the nature of hell, but rather to underscore the importance of the decision. And here, Christians of every stripe agree that the main thing is to avoid going to hell. Uh, This is clearly what Jesus is saying and what he underscores, what he emphasizes the most is that this is a thing to be avoided. At the same time, what Jesus did say supports the impression we get from the Old Testament of the end of the wicked ultimately coming to a place of final destruction. Take, for example, Matthew 10, 28. 
Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, not, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Here, Jesus likens the second death, the, when the soul, uh, souls and bodies of the wicked will be destroyed, to the same as if you killed somebody in life. In Matthew 3.10, he described the wicked as dry wood about to be thrown into fire and chaff about to be burned. We see the same imagery repeated in Matthew 13, where Jesus applies an agricultural metaphor that describes the wicked in the final judgment being gathered as a gardener gathers weeds and burns them up. And Jesus is not unique in invoking this kind of language. Paul also described the end of the wicked as destruction. Philippians 3.19, he says their end is destruction. The other New Testament writers also use the same language and imagery. 2 Peter 3, 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And here, I, I don't mean to wonk out and get a little bit nerdy, but it is helpful to do a little bit of a word study here. When we come to these words that are being used for destruction, uh, for example, the word used for destroy in the New Testament the Greek word is apolumi, which means to destroy utterly, to fully destroy, to cut off entirely. It's a very strongly worded word. It implies permanent and absolute destruction. It implies the cancellation out or the removal of a thing. And so in another word is katakayo. This is the word for burned up. It means to consume by fire, to be burned up completely. And so it's important to note that when the gospel writers, when the writers of the New Testament chose a word to describe the end of the wicked, they didn't choose the word burn, which would be kayo, but they chose katakayo, to be completely burned up. And they didn't choose a word that meant simply destroyed, but utterly destroyed. They didn't just say that the wicked would die, but that they would utterly die. The teaching that the wicked will be completely destroyed is even stronger in the New Testament than in the Old. As in the Old Testament, the wicked are frequently depicted as being destroyed by fire. For example, John the Baptist proclaimed that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He announced that the Messiah will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the shaft will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus himself describes hell as a consuming fire several times, Matthew 7, 13, and also John 15. The, the New Testament has many other ways of describing the fate of the wicked. All di directly or indirectly speak of total annihilation. The wicked are sometimes described, depicted as being consumed by fire, such as in Hebrews 6.8 or 10.7 or Jude 7. It is frequently said of the wicked that they will be destroyed. Jesus contrasts the wide gate that leads to destruction with the narrow gate that leads to life. Destruction clearly contrasts with life in this passage. And this, at least, implies cessation of consciousness, such as when a person is dead. 
So that is our last of the Advent Christian doctrinal distinctives that we'll be covering in this sermon series. And I don't, frankly, uh, enjoy thinking about the end of the wicked as much as I enjoy thinking about the promises of heaven. And whether or not you agree with the interpretation that I just offered up about the ultimate end of those who never put their trust in Jesus for salvation, that is, again, totally fine. Uh, Most of my mentors in the faith, most of um, those who have shepherded me down through the years and that I admire as Bible teachers, uh, many of them don't agree with that interpretation. But I believe it's the most coherent of what the Bible says. And incidentally, I also believe this. I think that God would be within his rights if eternal conscious, everlasting conscious torment was the end of the wicked. I don't really, um, I don't take issue with preachers who, who see that as, uh, I, I, in other words, I'm trying to say this. I think that a belief in the traditional view of hell is consistent with a God who's perfect in his attributes. I just don't think it is what the Bible says. And so when I come to the Bible, I want my understanding of what God says on a topic to be shaped clearly by by what he actually says. And here it is my clear conviction that when we read everything that the Bible says on the topic, he is talking about an act of destruction by which the lost are completely destroyed. They are utterly destroyed, apolumi. Now, having said all that, I don't want to end just on the downer of talking about hell. Hell is a reality. Before there can ever be good news, there has to be bad news. And the only delight I get in thinking about hell at all is the wonderful sensation that Romans 8.1 belongs to me and to you if you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think about that verse a lot. I let it just wash over me. It is a balm that I reapply to the wound of my conscience over and over and over again in my life. Or the word from 1 John where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. Oh, how wonderful that is. God, I'm a sinner, and I lean into your grace and forgiveness every day. The thing that I want to preach and proclaim is not the exact nature of hell. I think there is room to interpret this differently, and I extend respect and liberty and grace and charity to people who hold unlike views on this topic. But something all Christians must agree on is that our God is a God of justice. He is a perfectly righteous God. He is an all-consuming fire. He is the holy, holy, holy. He is the God who cannot look on sin, all biblical language for our God. And if you want to know how much God loves you, look no further than the cross. But the cross is also a symbol of how much God hates sin. It is a symbol of both his love and his hate, his love for you, that he would go there in your place, that Jesus would become the thing he hates on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians that he who who knew no sin became sin, 
That's what happened on the cross. He didn't just wear your sin, he became it. God's wrath was poured out on him in that moment. The cross is a symbol of God's love for you and his hate for sin. And so what we're talking about this morning is the grave consequences of the rebellion. If you're a sinner this morning, and by that I don't mean that you're a worse person than me, I just mean that you haven't yet been made righteous through what Jesus offers. I want you to know you don't so much have a sin problem as you have a God problem. What's needed is not behavior modification. Clean your act up. Do better. That's not the gospel. (laughs) You don't need a better version of you. You don't need improvement. You need to be made new. You need Jesus. You need a Savior. In the gospel, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single last blessed human being has sinned and fallen short. And what that means is that we are deserving of wrath and judgment. We are the offenders. God is the offended party, and he is right. We are wrong. And then in another chilling verse, it says this, Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. And I always explain it this way. What is a wage? Well, it's something we earn and deserve. You work for a wage. And we have worked hard to earn death. We have done so much to earn and deserve the righteous wrath of God. That's what we earn. That's what we deserve. But then the very next line in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but, underline that word, but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is a gift different than a wage? Well, it's not something you earn or deserve. It's given because of the nature of the person who gives it. The the gift of God, the thing he wants to give you, not because you've earned it or deserve it, but because he is awesome and excellent and good and loving and gracious and merciful is the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8 makes it abundantly clear this is nothing you deserve or can obtain through effort. Romans 5.8 says, but the love of God is demonstrated in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when you were a rebel in arms, (laughs) when you were standing and living in complete opposition to him, when you had done nothing to deserve, you had made no steps towards righteousness, in that state, He died for you. And then Romans 10, 9, Romans 10, 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 5, 1 makes it very plain that by faith you have been justified to God the Father. Justification is a legal term, meaning declared not guilty. And Romans 8, 1, the verse I just quoted a short while ago, says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing verse. No condemnation. Totally paid for. Delivered out from under it. And Romans 8 says that for those, who, uh, for those who are in Jesus, there is therefore nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are completely secure if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation. 
those who have Jesus' hat in his hand are there permanently, and they cannot be taken from him. So that is the gospel. That is the good news. That is what we are called to proclaim. Now, we've spent the majority of our time this morning talking about the bad news. But that bad news doesn't have to be your story. It does not have to be at all. If you have never put your trust in Jesus for salvation, I won't ask you to come forward. I won't even ask you to raise your hand. But I'm going to pray a very simple prayer right now. And if you're listening online or you're listening with us here in the room this morning, and over the course of our time together, you have found yourself believing in the gospel. God has mysteriously created within you belief, faith. I want you to pray these words in just the privacy of your heart and mind. They can be your words, and you can become a follower of Jesus today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't know if anyone is listening to this message today who has not yet put their trust in Jesus for salvation. But Father, I pray that if, if you have stirred them up to belief, if you have given them a belief in Jesus today, that they would pray this prayer along with me and that they would become a follower of Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I believe what you say in Romans 3:23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I believe the word in the Bible that says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and God, I am a sinner. I have sinned against your righteous laws, your commands. I am deserving of wrath. But God, I believe even as I believe that bad news, I also believe the good news that the free gift you're offering is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God, I know that I did not earn or deserve this. I know that the salvation you offer is because of what Jesus did for me and that I could never have earned it on my own. So Father, I accept this free gift. I ask you, Lord, uh, to give me the Holy Spirit I pray, Lord, that you would take my sins and remove them from me as far as east is from the west and remember them no more. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, by the Holy Spirit that you give me, help me to follow Jesus from now until when he comes back or I go into the grave, whichever comes first. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give me the capacity to say no to sin Although I won't be able to live perfectly for you, God, I pray that you would give me a love for righteousness. You would give me grace enough not only to take away my sins, but to also save me from sinning. Father, help me to be a true follower of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.